Welcome to the Idle Book Club for May 2017. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Arkadale. We're a little late. Our schedule got pushed back a couple weeks because of travel and some other things. But we are here now to discuss The Long Goodbye, a classic crime novel by Raymond Chandler. Next month, we're going to be discussing a somewhat more modern crime novel, A Sight for Sore Eyes, by the British novelist Ruth Rendell. But first... The Long Goodbye. Sarah, why did we pick this? One of the readers to this podcast had actually actually recommended uh, trying a format where two months in a row we read books of a similar type and and then kind of discuss those books together uh, after we've read both of them. So this month we read The Long Goodbye, which is a a classic piece of noir uh, detective fiction. And next month we'll read... Ruth Rendell, who is a British author uh, writing in the early 2000s, so much more modern take on crime fiction. I mean, she wrote, she passed away a couple years ago, but she wrote for decades, you know, decades and decades. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I read A Sight for Sore Eyes some years ago. It's been a while, so I'm looking forward to seeing what I think about it now. Um, but yeah, I think that'll, that'll be interesting, kind of pairing mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. And we can just see how that goes, but it should be something fun to try. Uh, and so The Long Goodbye seemed, if, if we wanted to read crime novels, it made sense to start with something a little bit older. And The Long Goodbye is just very well regarded and something that I have been wanting to read. So we picked it. All right. And then having picked it, what what were your overall thoughts? What did you think of the book? Uh, well, I enjoyed this book a lot, and, and that's what I was expecting to happen after seeing the movie because I enjoyed the movie so much. Um, I guess that's that's probably not necessarily a guarantee uh, because the we and we'll talk about the movie later, but they are they are different in a lot of significant ways. But I I thought this book overall was fantastic. I see why it it is considered to be a a great piece of detective fiction i'm sure that you also liked it having read it before we actually (laughs) i mean calling it detective fiction is even sort of a stretch because the so the main character is a is a private eye not not a detective but even then he does very little active solving really maybe i'm wrong about that he does he does a lot of uh i guess he follows a lot of leads yeah that's true which i guess is Really, what, what gum, actual... gumshoe, uh, <laughs> a lot of pounding the, the pavement. Yeah, I think is the expression. There's, I mean, he he does get some help with um, his his friend who works for that bigger, sure, private, yeah, agency. I, I guess what I mean is he his attitude towards the whole thing is so almost laid back and disaffected. It's almost as though he's doing following these leads out of. Um, almost like boredom. It sometimes feels that's not the right word, uh, but if he's not taking an active, intentional approach to figure this stuff out in as timely a fashion as possible, he's sort of always a couple steps behind and seems completely um, at peace with that. Um, anyway, we can get into that. My overall reaction to the book, I also really, really liked it. Like, as you say, that's no surprise given that I'd read it before. I thought I think Ch- Chandler. This is all I've all I've read by him, and I thought his writing in this book is pretty amazing. It's um, both uh, 
totally um, suffused with a lot of what I, th- you know, what I think we generally receive as classic noir tropes. You know, if you've seen a lot of film noir or seen a lot of things that refer to film noir, you know, it's one of those, or not just film, but uh, fiction, prose, whatever. Um, there's a lot of those archetypes and tropes, but none of it feel in this book. It doesn't feel um, default or cliche. The writing is so sharp and always on point that everything feels extremely vibrant. There's sort of a weird universe depicted in this book that is obviously our world but heightened in a very strange and I think often unsettling way that feels very unique. It feels like there's a very particular vision that created the world of this novel. And it's a, it's in some cases a really relatable one. And in some cases a very, very weird one. Um, and I liked it. I, I just, I loved it. I just thought it was so specific and, and uh, unique and unusual and also just often hilarious. Yeah. <clears throat> the humor of this book is is really fantastic. It's it's such a uh, subtle humor. Um, it's very you describe it as being very dry um, and very. Marlowe is is per- perhaps uh, too witty given yeah. the type of character. <laughs> possibly witty. Yeah, he yeah. always has yeah. a good comeback for mm-hmm. every for every situation, yep. and he he deploys it in in the the pitch perfect Mm -hmm. just salty way uh i have one line that comes towards the end of the book Mm -hmm. that i thought was one of the funniest things in the novel that i want to read really quickly sure it's just a sentence that comes as marlo is eating a crappy uh sandwich that he got from a convenience store basically and and it is Americans will eat anything if it is toasted and held together with a couple of toothpicks and has lettuce sticking out of the sides, preferably a little wilted. Um, <laughs> that's such an, a simple sentence, but I, I think I laughed out loud when I read that because it is true to a certain extent. And it's just very emblematic of the type of person that who Marlowe is, which is just so tired of everyone and everything (laughs) he's just fed up with all the bullshit and he's this that's exactly the kind of attitude that he would have just just this complete distaste Mm -hmm. for everyone around him and then being able to sum it up in a very pithy way it's Mm -hmm. just americans love you call it a sandwich and uh, everyone will eat it because I mean that's very similar to his observations about elected officials when he's um, I don't have this quote written down or a, or a page reference or anything but um, you know he's referring to is it the sh- is it the sheriff of I believe it's a sheriff he's talking about the guy who basically looks good on a horse mm-hmm. and he's sort of discussing how this guy is essentially a decent person but basically brainless and has little to no work ethic and gets elected basically through looking good in photo ops and not making waves. And he's got this, you know, he's got a similarly pithy comment about how Americans will elect anyone who, you know, 
so and so and so and so and looks good on a horse and, and it helps if they look good on a horse or anything mm-hmm. uh marlo has a very particular um vibe which is his whole he exudes simultaneously kind of a working class appeal and but also has this extremely pronounced strain of intellectualism mm-hmm. that one of that are i think feels unusual in the modern era because it feels as though those i i don't know if, if for all i know it may well have been unusual in the time that that uh chandler was writing I, I i don't you know having not been alive then i can't really speak to it but it feels as though those things have been very there's a strong wedge between those two archetypes in fiction now you know i mean just the cultural reality like sort of cultural wars we live in now um seem to suggest that intellectualism and and kind of working class appeal are absolutely at odds with each with each other but um marlo definitely exudes both mm-hmm. um throughout the entire novel you know i mean he's he's um he has a lot of really great pithy kind of takedowns of uh the wealthy and the powerful constantly but also frequently mentions just playing chess from a chess book against these great masters and is able he's clearly able to appreciate the artistry going on in those games but at the same time while he's doing that will also point out what a ridiculous waste of time and energy and and uh brain power the pursuit is in the first place he's got all of these uh contradictions in himself that are constantly um coming out through the page usually in a way that's very funny and uh, and and you know quippy. Marlo is like that guy in high school who is n- naturally smart, but then doesn't have any motivation to apply yeah. himself. <laughs> That's exactly. But, yeah. but as an adult, yeah. and 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 so much more tolerable than those people actually. Well, uh, because he's actually seen things, right? So he's sort sure. of sure. But he's 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 not a real person. Who you ha- if if you had to actually interact with this guy, he'd be insufferable. Yeah, I'm that's sure. why everyone, yeah. even the the police officers who are on his side, everybody hates. Yeah, Marlo because he yeah. is he's kind of just an asshole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he sort of he sort of sums it up at one point where he says regarding um, the Lennox's remarriage, he says, "I caught the rest of it in one of those snob columns in the society section of the paper." I don't read them often, only when I run out of things to dislike. That, that's an incredible, that's an incredible line. There's so many lines like that in this book. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Marlo is consistently the smartest guy in the room. That's yep. how he sees himself. And that's mm-hmm. how the book generally presents him. Uh, but to the book's credit, in the end, uh, that doesn't help Marlo. You know, he, he pro- projects this, uh, facade of of being above it all because he he knows that everything is m- meaningless and and he'll just make a joke about it and and move on but it's clear that the whole reason he gets wrapped up in the the case that he's investigating is because he actually does care uh, about humanity and and he, so that's why he get, he gets involved and then ultimately his uh, style of trying to keep everything removed back backfires a little he Mm -hmm. doesn't get what he wants in the end or he does get what he wants in the end but what he wants is something that will ultimately make him continue to make him 
miserable. What do you mean? What is it that he wants that you're suggesting? He I, wants? I, I, I believe he's motivated to have to get some kind of justice for uh, okay. his his friend. Yeah. And then once he he sees, uh, when he's still at the point where he thinks his friend Terry Lennox has been wrongly murdered and and framed for this crime that he didn't commit, and he and Marlowe has found out who the real culprit is instead of getting actual justice right he he goes down a a, a darker path uh that is ultimately unsatisfying to him and we can talk about that Mm -hmm. in a little bit but um yeah he he's this very uh removed character but the book doesn't necessarily celebrate the fact that he is i think that's right and i think importantly there are also times in which other characters seem to have more perspective than he does, and Chandler illustrates that. I mean, there's, there are there are times when be- Marlowe, th- I think in part because he is such a disaffected person, he he sort of is the de facto defender of the status quo, which isn't something you'd necessarily expect from a character who has so much disdain, as you say, for what's going on around him. But be- that's one of the things that happens when you sort of remove yourself from um, interacting with just everything that's around you as you end up sort of um, not taking a stand on things. And there's a point at which the when he's talking with his friend at the larger detective agency, um, they're sort of speaking about money and, and corporations. And, and Marlowe kind of makes one of his, like, again, comments about sort of, of well, what are you going to do? This is just how things are or something. And um, again, I, don't, I unfortunately didn't think to write this one down, but his friend comes back with some comment about the uh, sort of corrupting power of money in these large organizations. And it's the kind of cynical comment that you would expect to be coming from Marlowe, but it actually is sort of another character rebuking Marlowe for not seeing this, you know, the implications of the situation. And I thought, I think it's, I thought it was interesting that there are times when Marlowe is not necessarily the, you know, most woke person in the room. I mean, that's not an appropriate term for him, I guess, but, um, it's the book does not always act as though he's he always knows best, mm-hmm. and I think that's important. Otherwise, it would I think it would come off as insufferable. Mm-hmm. But he is consistently the funniest person. Yeah, he's always the wittiest person. That's yeah. that's generally true. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think one of the things we wanted to talk about generally is the sort. Of, I, I guess how this book relates to us now, or how this book feels as kind of a, a timeless piece of fiction, if indeed we, you know, we even consider it as such. Um, because it's a book that is obviously very much of its time, both in terms of being a post-World War II story about characters who very much are living in a post-World War II um, existence, um, and the fact that its main character has a job that, while technically still exists, is not really part of the public mm-hmm. kind of sphere the way that it appears private eyes once were at least based on their now much diminished presence in popular fiction um do you have any thoughts about that yeah so this book was written or published in 1953 which mm. uh was what 60 70 years ago at this point mm-hmm. almost seven. anyway um and i you can sit there and read it and it still makes sense 
uh, as far as the, the, you don't, there's nothing completely unusual um, about the universe in which these characters exist in, except when... I mean, I think there is. Well... But it's more, I think it has more to do with, I don't think it's necessarily because of the time in which the story story mm -hmm. is is set. Except for, like you were mentioning, these more explicit references to the Second World War and the impact that it, it has immediately had on characters because it's only yeah. been a few years. And I think the position of women in sure. society sure. and the books kind of whole fabric. Right. So there's this conversation that Marlowe has between uh, Marlowe has with Potter where Potter, Potter goes on this whole spiel about how the media only cares about uh, stories that have some salacious detail mm -hmm. and and sex is what sells in, in the media and, and and everything is terrible because people just want gossip instead of actual news which is just something that a person would say even today mm -hmm. uh and similarly someone with sufficient wealth and influence is also the kind of person who has the ability to guide that you know to sort of um control that coverage in a way that another person might not i mean they're you know bo both sides of that are, are are still relevant as well as i think things like how the police interact with crime and the, right. like the, you the know, corruption, you know, corruption and sort of um, rule of law. I mean, there's not there isn't really a lot of, uh, of racial dynamic in this book the way that there certainly would be in a current piece of fiction dealing with. Um, so, you know, <laughs> in a book in which police officers just like beat people up indiscriminately. Yeah, the the. I don't know if it, it is a good or a bad thing that the basic politics of this book are still completely relevant to yeah. our our world as as they would have been to Marlowe's world. So there's yeah there's 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 this just like constant aggression mm -hmm. by authority figures but yeah that is that is that just permeates everything mm -hmm. and ends up seeping into like th this book just has a um a sort of like uh, patina of violence or like the threat of violence to it that I found really was like sort of electrifying in sort of a disturbing way. I mean, the, the it's not really a disturbing book to read. It's a sort of a page turner generally, but there's just this ongoing, like just weird, violent edge that mm -hmm. some, sometimes boils over. And there are a number of scenes of actual violence in the book usually not debilitating violence usually violence that, that people walk away from there isn't a lot of uh, i mean there are murders that happen but in terms of what we actually witness as the reader there's more of this just kind of like ongoing threat all the time that i found kept everything feeling really charged and kind of weird and unsettling um and i don't know if that's i don't know if uh, if that's like necessarily a universal theme or anything i mean i don't feel that i mean i that obviously i think that is more to do with the um vision of this particular universe or character or author or whatever than necessarily just like a property of our world but i don't know maybe not um i just i did you get that sense i don't know i just there's i'm struggling to put into words exactly what i mean but i just always felt as though there was the just this like aggression threatening to bubble over at all times i i understand what you're 
referring to. I don't necessarily know that that's how I, I would have described it um, mm-hmm. because the book, so much of the 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 deadly violence happens off screen. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, it's more that uh, Marlowe is either th- threatened to, to have his ass kicked or in some cases just just, just does but um he always is able to to bounce back from that mm-hmm. i i think it's hard for for me to feel um that that kind of threatening vibe because marlo himself is so blasé about mm-hmm. the the violence that is committed to him and also the violence that he is w- witnessing and so right. when your when your main character is that detached uh, as a reader it is is also easy to become detached from it or maybe because i live in the modern era where people are constantly saying that we're immune to violence in media, uh, in media. Yeah. and may, maybe that has an influence to it but i re- i really think it's it's largely because marlowe is written as such uh, and an apathetic well, that person. Is, that, I mean, that contrast of constant threat of violence and apathy, to my understanding, actually, I think feeds into the post World War II setting, right? I mean, that's kind of where film noir, you know, I, I'm, I'm less versed in detective fiction of the era, but I've seen quite a lot of film noir, which, which would have been, um, largely contemporary to this, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, and a lot of that w- was fueled by um, men returning from World War II having this new weird worldview, uh, having witnessed a great deal of violence, suffering, conflict, um, coming back, which is something that happens in in uh, many wars, but World War II was such an all-consuming conflict that it it cast a huge um, shadow over a certain, um, I guess, age range of uh, of person, especially those who actually saw combat. And so, people would come back from this war and infuse a lot of entertainment with both um, these themes of conflict and darkness, but also that sense of detachment. And I think that's really present in this novel. Um, and World War II is it's frequently alluded to mm-hmm. directly just in the actual um, histories of the characters right. present in the novel. It feels like a huge, um, you know, extremely important uh, force. Yes. So something that made reading this book a, a real joy was was the this very specific combination of how so much of the book remains relevant to a modern day reader a modern day reader could pick up this book and and understand almost everything including some of the slang that 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 borders on being uh, very very outdated to oh, the yeah. point of incomprehension yeah. but basically you you can follow it and then on on the other hand there you're right there's this very specific reference to that the era in which this book is written that would be that would only be incredibly relevant to the people who are actually experiencing that same era um with you know who are contemporaries to the the Marlowe character and and you and I as modern day readers can 
kind of intellectually understand, well, this is the a, a very recent post-war era and, and tumultuous time period. And, and these are all the things that we can assume and, and or can read in history is what people are going through. But since we've, we have, we didn't specifically experience it, that's, it's all uh, secondhand that we're making mm-hmm. these assumptions. And I, 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 well, in the modern day conflicts that, for instance, our country is involved in are so much, um, we don't have a draft, you know, I mean, there's, there, sure. we're so much more removed from it than right. people were at that time. And, and to, to anyone who is our age, the, even though we, we also were too young to have experienced Vietnam, I think mm-hmm. Vietnam is yeah. the, the war that most people now will jump to as, as having this kind of emotional, uh, like ravaging of the American psyche. So you know, twenty years maybe when when people are reading. I hope people are still reading the long by in twenty years. But when that happens, will a book like this need footnotes to explain right. some of these references to the history and 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 the language uh, in the way that now, if you read a book written in the eighteen hundreds, you can also you can often get an edition that has footnotes explaining. Well, this is a reference mm-hmm. to yeah. this bit of history that we don't really learn anymore. Um, it, it maybe maybe not the most insightful comment about a book written several decades before we were born, but uh, that was an aspect of the novel that was really fun to just think about as mm-hmm. you're you're reading about, and you know the 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 way World War Two is so important to the plot of the yeah. the book, right? Because it's it reveals this sure. aspect of multiple characters. Uh, it's just um, an interesting side part of this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of an, of another aspect of the book that is, I think, very much of its time, uh, what did you make of the way women are, are presented and treated in this novel? Because that definitely felt like something, you know, that is dated relative to what this not exact same plot would be if it were written now. I thought it was going to be so much worse oh, than yeah. it actually turned out to be. I think so women are in, important to the novel but they're they're definitely um treated as second class to all of the men mm-hmm. uh this book is so is it's so driven by marlowe's um compassion and i would say love for his friend terry Lennox, uh, not a rom- not necessarily a romantic love, um, but he certainly is outside, like devoted to this man uh, way more than he's devoted to anything else. Right, to a degree that is frustrating to him. It seems right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's sort of, I mean, he's sort of resentful of his own investment in that character. Yeah. So there, his emotional relationship to Terry Lennox is way more important than any relationship that he has with women in this book. Um, but so the the women are are kind of treated as uh, lesser. The way that Marlowe relates to women is not as important as he relates to Terry Lennox to the point where. Uh, you know, the whole plot is is that Terry Lennox has been accused of of murdering his his wife in in what is described as a very very violent way, and 
Marlo with very little evidence, just, you know, his friendship with this man from the get-go is convinced that Lennox is completely innocent and and never once really seems to to doubt that. So he is going out of his way to try and figure out what really happened to 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 bring some kind of justice to his friend uh and and doesn't ever seem to care about the the wife that was a weird aspect of the book for me more so than any other way yeah, that's that, interesting, yeah. that women are treated is that that the the that part just gets glossed over when we know unfortunately based just on statistics that when a, a when a woman gets murdered it's almost always the partner who who mm-hmm. does it right and and that part was kind of hard to take but you you have to accept it or else you just fail to accept the entire premise of the novel um but right i found his devotion to this guy uh, at the cost of all women, basically, in the book to be the hardest aspect to deal with. Um, and I found the just the other ways in which women, uh, like the, the women, all dames, right? Yeah. This like classic sure. uh, broads uh, way of dealing with women, which I know that we both really enjoyed uh, his what two-page long description of the different t- kinds of blonde women, which I just... Oh, did I really enjoy that? I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I want to read... I don't want to read all of it because it, it does seriously go on for two pages, but I <laughs> um, I want to read the beginning of it. There are blondes and blondes, and it is almost a joke word nowadays. All blondes have their points, except perhaps the metallic ones who are as blonde as a Zulu under the bleach and as to disposition as soft as a sidewalk. There is the small, cute blonde who cheeps and twitters, and the big, statuesque blonde who straight arms you with an ice blue glare. There is the blonde who gives you the up-from-under look and smells lovely and shimmers and hangs on your arm and is always very, very tired when you take her home. She makes that helpless gesture and has that goddamn headache, and you want you would like to slug her, except that you are glad you found out about the headache before you invested too much time and money and hope in her. And then it just keeps going. Yeah. I I just found that funny. Mm-hmm. I I it's it's hard for me to get worked up about that kind of attitude because it it, it feels so old. Yeah. At this point, um, maybe there are still people who w- would love to tell you about all kinds of blondes that that exist. I think that this attitude that attitude absolutely still exists. It just wouldn't necessarily be phrased that way. Sure, it wouldn't be as direct. Uh, yeah, it's more of the just like. The thing about the headache totally sounds like it could just come from a modern, like, sort of um, sea level stand up routine. Yeah, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't be as pithy but, and clever as that passage. But it, but you know, it, I, but even that stuff, if it's said now, feels extremely retrograde, yeah. out, outdated to the point of I can't even be offended because it's it's it reads as pathetic now and then uh, quaint. When it's sure. from the 1950s. Because of that passage you just read, I wanted to sort of uh, mention a different, this is a very short quote. Uh, when he when Marlowe runs into Sylvia Lennox's sister, Linda Loring, in the bar Victor's, which he, he returns to many times over the course of the novel, before he knows there's any reason she'd be connected to any of this stuff, she's just some woman in a bar, she comes over and he says, 
Once in a while, in this much-too-sex-conscious country, a man and a woman can meet and talk without dragging bedrooms into it. And he's sort of making this comment in reaction to generalized, I guess, American assumptions that any time a man and woman interact, interact for any reason, it's going to be because of sex in some form or another, or because of the like desire for sex or what have you. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting quote, because on the one hand, you know, you sort of sympathize with what he's <coughs> saying. It's like, yeah, it shouldn't be taken for granted that the only reason men and women would ever be in the same place at the same time alone uh, is for, you know, some kind of like sexually charged encounter. I mean, that this kind of thing has come up in political news recently, right? But on the other hand, like, I think it's notable that in the same novel in which that is being lamented, it's also the case that, you know, every female character who's introduced in the in the novel pretty much comes with an initial appraisal that has some kind of sexual charge to it. And so I, I think at the same, at this, I, and I, I don't really know what the author Chandler's attitudes to any of this stuff are, but I think the thing that Marlowe is, and I'm assuming to some degree Chandler as well, the thing that Marlowe is lamenting is sort of a result of the attitude he himself also generally takes, right? And I thought that was an interesting kind of contradiction. And and again, this is why, for the most part, I can accept, oh, I'm reading a book from a yeah, different a era. Time, yeah. Not that our time is... Yeah, when Perfect people, read, people with, are going to read books fifty sure. years from now and be like, "Look at these imbeciles!" Right, yeah. uh, and and there is some level of acceptance that is good to have when you're reading books that are outside of your culture and outside of your era. Um, I think a good example that comes up sometimes is when you read Dostoevsky, who is a very famous Russian author who is worth reading, um, but occasionally his books will have negative comments about Jewish people because Mm. a lot of Russians of that era would have felt that way, and it is upsetting, and, you know, you you shouldn't, you don't have to support it, and and certainly if people don't want to read that, then then that's fine, but also there, it's, it's just something that you have to, either you're, you're disgusted by it, and you just don't want to deal with it or you accept that th- this was the reality of that time and you kind of just move past it and i i felt that way for the most part with this book just yep the, the women are not going to come off well in this novel in comparison to men uh except for the fact that marlo is so fanatically devoted to this guy f- <laughs> that he he's had this is a big sticking point for you yeah i which is crazy because it's the whole point of the book mm-hmm. but and i didn't really start getting bothered by it until uh the end where he's gone to such great lengths for this person um from the telling of it where the, uh, i think it's one of those things where men of this era just could not because of the way society was treating them could not emotionally react in in the way that they needed to and 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 i assume some of that is tied up in in this post immediate post-war era where uh you it it would be impossible not to feel all kinds of emotions in in that time period but also men there's this attitude back then of of men needing to be very stoic and and not um give in to and often now sure but but 
it's it's slowly diminishing, right? Yes, unfortunately, we still have that stereotype, but uh, men are in in this country are not quite as um, hamstrung by that, uh, and and I and I wonder if that's what we're supposed to accept is the reason for why Marlo is like to the point of being obsessive about mm. his his friendship because these well, th- two, two men ha- have been able to have some kind of emotional connection and they're both clearly traumatized and and they haven't been able to really tell each other fully why they're traumatized um but they recognize that or at least Marlo recognizes it in Terry Lennox and 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 that's why he's so devoted to this friendship that when you just describe it on the page it, it, it does come mm. across as very like oh you had this brief relationship with this guy and now you're jumping through all these hoops yeah i mean i think the while the book doesn't make that explicit i think the book invites that kind of um general mode of interpretation because marlo is presented as such a generally conflicted and fairly vulnerable character even though he doesn't outwardly display that his whole sort of job relies on not appearing vulnerable but i think it's pretty clear from his interiority throughout that he is not as straightforward as he makes himself out to be in how he presents himself professionally um and it's also pretty clear that he has gone you know he's a what a middle-aged man in this book He's in his 40s. He's in his 40s, has not had, does not seem that he's really to any significant degree had a very long-term relationship, um, certainly not a marriage. Um, well, he explicitly mentions that he, yeah. he has chosen not to right. settle down. Yeah. I think he says, oh, I could could be living in, Can- I don't know if it's actually Kansas, but some, right, someplace like some that, plain with state whatever. with right, a, right, right. a wife and kids, and yeah. he said, but and I so, chose not to. And so I think we're, I mean, I I think it's pretty fair to read into that character. I mean, the the, the totality of how he's presented, I think, um, you know, is fertile ground for more complex interpretations along those lines. At the end of the book, when he, he f- figures everything out and, and, and realizes that Ellen is responsible for um, all of the murders, um, he, he goes to confront her. Um, and then reveals that he knows everything and, and then leaves. And the next day she's committed suicide. Um, did you think that he was goading her into that? No, I don't think he was goading her into it, but I do think he is essentially at least partially responsible for what happened because of his seemingly constant need to be correct about things over all other considerations. I mean, so much of his character is invested in, you know, as you were saying earlier, basically being the smartest or wittiest guy in the room at any given moment. And I think that drives so many of his interactions with people, often to his own detriment. I mean, he often ends up getting his ass kicked for no reason other than that he needed to demonstrate his uh kind of wittiness or or intelligence or or rebelliousness or what have you and i think that his similar attitude there you know ultimately served very little purpose other than to fulfill this like almost pathological 
like obsession he has, which is part of what makes him an interesting character and also the thing that really causes problems where they don't necessarily need to be. See, I think he knew that this was going to be a possible outcome of mm. accusing... Be, because it, from her perspective, she has... She's been caught and, and she has, even though Marlo himself knows that she probably won't get arrested um, because there's just not enough yeah. evidence to actually pin all these crimes on her. Uh, she The way that he presents it to her, she doesn't know right. that. And, um, and, and this is why I was saying earlier that uh, the book does not necessarily seem to reward Marlo's worldview because... Like you were saying, his, his he needs to be correct. So his his dogmatic he you know he criticizes others for being dogmatic, but um, he also has this flaw of oh if I don't have emotions that means if I don't have um, strong feelings that means that I also can't be corrupted. He's above it all, but actually you know he's just as much a part of it as anyone else is, and that's what leads him to effectively uh goading this woman into committing suicide and it's such a dark way to to basically end it, it makes the book that much better i think because it, it does show how corrupted um marlo is and and not above I mean, it I, all yeah i i don't know if i'd use the word corrupted necessarily just because that means a very different thing than the sort of corruption you're referring to in other characters but i think it's definitely a, I mean, I guess you could say his, his sort of like a corruption of his own soul to some degree. Right. Which yeah. is what he constantly is criticizing other people for having with the implication that because he is has so much insight into how uh, messed up and, and um, contradictory other people are that somehow he himself ca- will not have those contradictions when obviously at the end of the day, he is just as human as all the other people. I mean, it just proves in the end that he didn't necessarily want justice for his friend. He he just wanted uh, revenge. I, I think that's that's fair enough. the The book has is just infused with a sense of melancholy that I think is absolutely reinforced by that ending. I, I think a lot of Marlowe's character and actions deal with this sense of detachment and remove and the ending is kind of the ultimate expression of that i mean right. he, he goes in and basically drops a bunch of information and then just opts out of right any whereas you know as the police officer says to him like why didn't you yeah like we could have just gone in there right. and gotten and her and then her. she wouldn't be dead now yeah. um but he and doesn't I, care i think it that it there's it's almost this it feels related to me to that that sense of you know very film noir post-world war ii ennui this sense of like what is there are these forces um governing things that are so huge and and the impulse so frequently can just be to not engage Uh, i think that is so much of what suffuses this book and gives it a very particular um but he does engage no i know well yes i know but in this sort of like intellectual removed mm-hmm. way that I think is very emblematic of his character. When it is finally revealed to him in the end that Terry Lennox is actually not dead and has been alive mm-hmm. this entire time, he just kind of brushes 
past that. I mean, he has allowed this woman to kill herself uh, because of his devotion to Terry Lennox, who he's presumed to have been dead this entire time. And when he when he fi- finally finds out what the truth is, he's de- he's not even mad necessarily. I mean, I'm sure he he's mad, but not to the point of seeking any kind of retribution on Terry Lennox. The book just ends, right? And, and we don't get any kind of um, closure on on that on that point. But the closure we do get is for. A, a character who is not innocent by any means, but maybe didn't necessarily deserve the resolution that she has. And and I don't know if that's necessarily intentionally a comment on on Marlowe or uh, this this relation to women um, that the the book has, or if it's a combination of both. Um, but it's just it's a it was striking yeah. to me. Um, and I choose to interpret it as rebuke or rebuke of Marlowe's um, attitude. Attitude, yeah. Yeah, I didn't come away with it with as a specific interpretation as you did. Although I, I, I like the, I like the, um, you know, the framework you just presented. Um, I, I think my f- sort of final takeaway on the book is largely what the book's takeaway seems to be which is how it ends which is um final two paragraphs of the book the french have a phrase for it the bastards have a phrase for everything and they are always right to say goodbye is to die a little those three sentences to me are so emblematic of this entire book's feeling and worldview and that they are simultaneously it's a very funny way to convey that sentiment um it combines this sort of intellectualism with this kind of hard knocks realism of Marlowe and also it just conveys an incredible amount of sadness and melancholy and it that that every most of what I most of what I got from this book I think is just all put right there in a few lines I thought it was just an incredible little pithy clause Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's a good author who can summarize their the whole book Mm -hmm. in a few sentences at the end. I don't know if you want to talk about the movie. Oh, sure. We can, a little bit. It's differences, which I will not spoil because they're kind of crucial. Uh, I I think ultimately mean that the the movie and and the book have a different uh, message or or, or outlook, maybe. In some ways, although I will say this is, because this has nothing to do with the actual plot. This is Robert Altman's... um, adaptation of the long goodbye i don't what is it 1974 maybe when is it movie come out or 73 it's early 70s for sure yeah um it's it's a really interesting adaptation of the novel because it sets the it sets the events of the book in the actual era in which the movie was filmed um yeah 1973 you're correct so it's a the Marlowe character is in 1973 which is a time period that does not make as much sense for the actual occupation of this person. And so much of what the movie is about is this theme of kind of a man out of time. And I think it is an absolutely brilliant way to convey a lot of that same kind of melancholy and um, detachment that the book does while choosing a completely different era still getting a lot of that same 
uh, power and resonance by actually changing that premise. It's it's re- I think a really really smart piece of um, really like smart choice of adaptation, which you know it's I think it's really difficult to adapt a work change so much of it and yet maintain a lot of what's important about it there are other elements that are changed because of how the plot has changed but we won't as you say but we won't go into that um and the other thing that is that is a little bit different is that it's less of a kind of hard-boiled um vibe and more of this the aspects of marlo as the kind of um semi-hapless like character that stumbles into these situations is played up a lot and when I first read the book, I had not seen the film. We saw the film a couple of years ago, reading it again, as I was reading through it, there every once in a while I would hit a scene that made me go, Oh man, I see what Altman was like pulling from in his adaptation there. And there's, there's a, for instance, a scene where Marlowe is visited by cops after he drives Lennox to Tijuana and, uh, and Marlowe says, uh, this is where I say, what's this all about? And you say, we ask the questions. And then the cop says, so you just answer them, huh? And then Marlo in his head says, I lit the pipe. The tobacco was a little too moist. It took me some time to light it properly and three matches. And so you're just imagining this guy completely fumbling this, like he tries to unload this zinger and then he's sitting here like trying to light his pipe and just completely failing. And that totally sums up the version of Ma- Marlo in Altman's The Long Goodbye, I think. Um, it's a really cool, I think a really cool interpretation of this character in this novel. Very worth watching. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess that's it for our discussion of The Long Goodbye. Uh, next month, we are reading A Sight for Sore Eyes by Ruth Rendell, which is a very different, very, very different crime novel, I think, I mean, to my memory. And I'm, I'm looking forward, Sarah, to you um, reading it and giving me your thoughts. And I'm also looking forward to seeing my own reaction because it's been quite some time since I read it. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Idle Book Club. Again, next month's book is A Sight for Sore Eyes by Ruth Rendell. And we will be back in June. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. Bye. Bye.